obsessed with love. I mean, think about it. How many movies are about love? Right? A lot of movies about love. Romantic comedies and love story dramas and about entire Hallmark Channel, which is the same movie 14 times a day with different actors with the same storyline. Saying almost the same lines. But sometimes in the winter and sometimes in the summer. And sometimes at Christmas and sometimes at Thanksgiving. <clears throat> but pretty much the same thing as the Hallmark Channel. We write poems and novels about it, right? Because of authors whose entire lives are making fortunes writing tragic love stories, right? Nicholas Sparks. What's the other guy's name? John. Teens spend hours texting and snapping about it, right? Taylor Swift seems to be pretty bad at it. Listen to her songs. I mean, every song is about a relationship gone bad, so I mean, it's never her fault though. I mean, it's never her fault. If you're old like me, you'll remember that the Jay Giles band told us that love stinks. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but before that, the Beatles told us that love is all we need. And it's not just us, but love is a favorite subject of ancient poets and writers and on and on. And I think um, you probably would agree with me that, that much of humanity for much of history has had some level of obsession with love. But I wonder how many times we ask why? Why are we so interested in love? Where does the desire to love and be loved come from? Because most people have a desire to love and to be loved. Now Darwinism would tell us that it's a chemical process, several chemical processes, uh, that bring people together to promulgate the species. So romantic. Nihilism and existentialism will tell us that it's a coping mechanism <clears throat> to craft artificial meaning because, as I pointed out last week, according to existentialism and John Paul Sartre and the rest, life has no meaning. So we have to create some meaning of our own, even though it's futile. Basically, love then, according to them, is a way to push aside the existential dread for a while and try to feel something, even though in the end you're just going to but what if I told you love is a fundamental part of the creation? When 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us and gave himself up for us, that that's not just a statement about Jesus acting in love on the cross. That is, in fact, pointing us to his love that existed even before the creation. That he first loved us long before even the cross. Now remember I pointed out last week that the Bible was meant to convey to us things that God wants us to know about himself and his work in the world. We are not the central characters of the story. He is. And the story to be understood properly, remember, has to be understood in light of four major themes. 
that tie all of the Bible together. And so the four major themes of God's story that connected all the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we started last week on the theme of creation having to do with not just how everything got here. In fact, if you recall, I didn't talk anything about the mechanics of how anything got here. I mean, we could have many sermons. We could decide, are we, you know, are we seven-day young earth creation or seven-day older earth creation or gap theory or this theory or that theory or whatever theory? Because, you know, you could talk to 14 theologians and get 27 explanations. But we talked about how creation matters because from it flow meaning and purpose that make life and our lives possible and worth living. That because there is a creator, he infuses things with meaning, with purpose. Everything and everyone is created by God's design and all achieve their greatest meaning and their greatest freedom when they are functioning according to the way God himself designed them. That's where meaning and purpose are found in the creator who created us and in us functioning according to how he designed us. We also pointed out, secondly, that when God speaks into the darkness, remember it talks about him speaking into the darkness and creating light, and he separates the darkness and the light and the first day happens, what is trying to be pointed to there isn't just something about night and day, but is the idea of God taking chaos and bringing order. God brings order to the universe. He creates a universe that is a universe of order. It's not meant to be chaos and confusion. Now, it feels like chaos and confusion sometimes, but that's because of what we're going to talk about next week, which is the fall. It wasn't created to be that way. Everything God does has order. He creates order for the days and the times and the seasons. He creates order for the family. He creates order for his creatures, right? To reproduce and thrive and to be able to fill the earth with life. That's important because so much of what happens in the fall, which we'll talk about next Sunday, takes the purpose and the meaning and the order God created and introduces corruption and futility into that perfect creation. But before we get to that, there's one more important thing I want to note about the creation, and that is not only was God there in the beginning, and it's the base, he's the ground and basis for all things, and he gives meaning and purpose, and not only was there disorder in the darkness, which God brings to order. Remember, I said there were three things. There was God in the beginning, there's the darkness in the beginning, and there's love. And our entire understanding of one God as three persons really begins in the creative work of God in love. And it's in the basis of that relationship that we were created as God's companions, which also sets the stage for that second great theme in the fall, which threatens to take away not only order, meaning, but love that we were created out of and bring the darkness back into creation. And so I want to spend some time this morning talking about a Trinitarian understanding of creation. Let's go back to the beginning.
Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now right from the beginning here, we see in the first three verses of the Bible, God and the Spirit of God both being talked about. Now the sort of generic word for God is used here, Elohim. And then we're told that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Now that word for hovering has the idea of a bird hovering over young chicks to protect them. Seen uh, the other place it go, it's in the Old Testament, is in Deuteronomy 32. We're talking about God in verse 11. It says, he watches over his nest like an eagle, and there's that word again, hovers over his young. He spreads his wings, catches him, and carries him on his feathers. It's the idea of protecting and raising and nurturing. God there nurturing his creation. But the thing I really want you to understand is that God is there being described in two different ways, right? You have just this generic word for God, and then you have the Spirit of God. And they're both present in that initial narrative. And when we get to the New Testament, it's going to expand on this idea. In some important creation passages, we have in the New Testament. First of which is John chapter 1. Kind of a long passage. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See that whole light, darkness thing going on again? Now there was a man sent from God, his name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. So the light was coming into the world, but he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Think about it. Step back there. A lot of that. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the New Testament equivalent of Genesis chapter 1. This is the New Testament creation narrative. All the motives of creation are here, right? Jesus, word of God. I mean, what are words but things that are spoken? How did it say back in Genesis 1-1 that God created? And God said, let there be light. Right? The whole narrative, if you read through Genesis 1, is always God said this, and it happens. He spoke. Each element of creation comes into being as God speaks. Well, how does God speak? Through and by his word. Who is Jesus? So John tells us that the word of God, Jesus, is the one through whom all things are made. Not anything was made, but that was made by him. 
Jesus, the word of God. God speaks his word and the creation takes place. Secondly, notice, Jesus is also called the true light. What's the first thing God creates through Jesus? Light. God says, let there be light. What does the light do? It drives back the darkness. God uses the light to separate the darkness. Not just literal darkness, but chaos and discord present in the primal world. Jesus is the ordering factor in the creation because he is the light that has come into the world. He's the light that brings life. Now I'm going to jump ahead here real quick for a second. A little foreshadowing of next week's message. This is how I get you to come back. And it's not just for my good looks. Some of you laugh too fast at that. What does sin bring back into the world? Darkness. Disorder. Corruption. Chaos. All the things that are separated out and driven back in the creation, sin brings back in. Look at Jesus' own words in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk where? In darkness. But will have the light of life. Walking in darkness is to be caught up in sin. Romans 13, 12 calls sin the works of darkness. The darkness of sin brings a return to what? Disorder and chaos and corruption. And Jesus comes as the light to dispel that darkness and in redemption move us toward the restoration of how God intended the creation to be. Remember, there's creation. We're going to talk about the fall. And then there's redemption. Jesus is the redemption that's moving us toward restoration. So you take Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and then you look at John chapter 1, and what do you have? You have all three persons of the Trinity involved and present at the creation. God the Father is there. Spirit is there. Jesus the Son is there. All together, creating. Now, something even more interesting about Jesus and his creative work is developed by Paul in his letter to Colossae. And that is the preeminence of Jesus in creation. Let's look at verses 15 through 17 of Colossians chapter 1. This is another creation narrative, sort of. Talking about Jesus, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether, rulers or, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So now we have Paul here reminding us, Jesus is creator of all things. Okay, we got that from John, no problem. Both earthly and heavenly. Now that's when he talks about thrones and principalities and authorities and dominions and stuff. It's all talking about things in the heavenly realms. That's not particularly important right now. What I want us to understand here is the preeminence assigned to Jesus. First, we're told in verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when it says firstborn, if you're like, you know, most people, you're thinking firstborn is like the first child in the family. Well, big deal. But when it's talking firstborn of all creation, 
In this context, it's referring to rank. In ancient societies, in the context that Paul would have written this, Israel included, Rome included, the firstborn son held a special place of privilege. He didn't have to be the firstborn. You could have had three, three daughters. Okay? But the firstborn son was the one who held rank. He would have been the most important child. Okay? I mean, the whole patriarchy thing isn't something new. It's been going on for thousands of years. So. He has a special place. He's the one to inherit the largest share of the inheritance. The one who will be the next patriarch of the family. So you could actually be the youngest child and still be the firstborn in the sense if you were male in an ancient society, because you would be the first in rank. Jesus here is the one who is the first in rank of all creation. He is the one who is to inherit and to rule over the creation himself. And this is reinforced then in the idea he's before all things. Now, when you see before all things, this isn't a time reference necessarily. It's a reference to authority. He's in charge. He's the boss. He created it, so therefore he's in charge of it. He's in front of it in the idea of he's the ruler of it. Then we're told in the end there, in him all things hold together. I remember hearing a preacher years ago, and he went into this verse and he talked about how how there's these forces that hold the atom together, and you know, I don't know how much you know about physics, but there's the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and all this kind of stuff. He was trying to talk about how Jesus was the strong nuclear force holding atoms together at the molecular level. And I and my degree in physics from Michigan were rolling my eyes at the back of the auditorium. But anyway, he meant well. Or, or as they used to say in seminary about things like that, it makes for good preaching. I don't think that's what's meant here. Remember that when creation takes place, what does Jesus do? He brings the light. He dispels the darkness. He brings order to the primordial chaos. Sin comes in and brings back the darkness and disorder. Jesus, however, is the light that is the life of mankind. So he holds things together even though sin is working to tear them apart. So it means he's holding it together. God didn't create a universe where it requires Jesus to actively be at work at the core of every atom to make sure the universe just doesn't fly apart. I mean, I'm assuming God's smarter than that. He can make a universe that can hold itself together in that sense. But there's forces trying to tear the universe apart. Force of sin. And Jesus is holding it together. And that's, to me, that's a super encouraging thought. Because, you know what? Sometimes it does feel like the universe is trying to fly apart. My little universe, anyway. Feels like it's trying to fall apart. But if Jesus is holding it together, and nothing in the universe is outside of his control, and he has authority over all things because he's the firstborn over all creation, which means he's in first in rank, and he's before all things, then I'm going to be okay. Because he's holding it together. He created it. He'll keep it together until the final day of redemption. Finally, verse 16 ends. 
pointing out the creation, and this is where I really want to zoom in here for a second, is for him. Now these two little words probably are so loaded, they probably deserve their own sermon. It's always the little things that you can just gloss over really fast, right? But they're super significant. Because tucked here at the end of this little verse is the reason God made everything. Here it is. Here's why God made Why did God make everything? For Jesus. It's for him. It was all made for Jesus. In other words, the universe comes out of the flow of love in the Trinity as everything is made for Jesus. So this idea of the creation being made for Jesus points us to something about God that we see in how he relates in how his relationships are based in love and not power. We're going to go to John chapter 17. This is Jesus praying, right? And it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So Jesus is talking about how the Father has given him everything, even from before the world. And we drop down to verse 22. We're going to talk more on this glory idea. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with you where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. And I made known to them your name, and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. <laughs> Whoa, Jesus. Let, let, let's just kind of try to follow some of the flow of thought here without getting hung up on too many of the details. Jesus came into the world. He's begun the redemptive process through giving eternal life. He points out that in all of that, he has glorified the Father and he himself had glory long before anything was created. He and the Father and the Spirit existed as all they were. That's the whole before the foundation of the world part. And then he goes to this idea that he has shown or given that glory to those who would follow him so that they may be one. But then he gets to verse 24, and that really brings it home. Why would the Father glorify Jesus and then show that glory to those who would follow Jesus? Because of their Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because of their love before the foundation of the world. And what does Jesus, according to verse 26, continue to make known? 
the love which the Father has for him. So, we put this together, after Colossians and all that, when the Godhead decides to create, they create for Jesus, out of the love that was present at the beginning. The glory of God in John 17 is linked to the demonstration of love. How does God glorify himself? How do we glorify God? Right? By loving. Those two things are, are, are deeply linked. The glory of God and the love of God. The glory is linked to his demonstration of love, first for Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and then for his creatures that are created for Jesus. God shows his glory to them through Jesus, through the creation, in love. And I think this explains so much then about the love of Jesus, right, which is so great that he would suffer and die for us despite any of our sins or our rejection of him. He loves his creation, and he loves its creatures because they are his, and they were created for him in the first place. Loves us, he first loved us because we were created for him and by him as a demonstration of love. And so meaning and purpose come full circle in this because we know when God creates, he creates out of love and as a demonstration of love. His love for Jesus and then Jesus' love for those whom not only did he make in the first place, but whom, as we just celebrated, as we partook of the bread and the cup, he will die to redeem from the fall and its consequences. Now, to me, this gives this whole concept of God is love a whole new deeper meaning. It's not just love as in he loves us. He's love as an expression of who he is long before even anything is created. The creation isn't made as some sort of demonstration of power, although it is made as a demonstration of his glory, but not in the way you might think. Because how he demonstrates his glory is through love. not just made even so that Jesus can have a kingdom someday, although he will have a kingdom someday. It's made because there is love in the Trinity and that love needs to be expressed. And together the Father, Son, and Spirit decide for whatever reasons, known to them only, not revealed in the Bible, that the best expression of that love is to create this universe and us as part of it through Jesus and for Jesus and thus demonstrate that love and show their glory. So I think the answer to why we love and why we love love, right? Because we love love. Say that three times fast. And where love comes from is not because we're just trying to push away some existential dread and create meaning where we have none. John Paul Sartre. And it's not because of some chemical processes and pheromones, and if you get the right cologne, she'll fall for you. (laughs) (laughs) 
entire creation is bound up in both the Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and their desire to express the love to their creation, which is us. And so we truly do love 1 John 4.19, because sometime before even the universe was created, he first loved us. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing way you have chosen to show your love and your glory through the creation and through creating us. But we are grateful that we can love because you first loved us, that in fact love is part of the creation, which is the best part. And we have an opportunity not only to love you, but to love one another. And to show your glory even by loving one another and by loving our Lord Jesus. So help us, Father, to love as you have loved. Because we can love because you loved. And you give me the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite the band to come up.